Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This episode is brought to you by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey, everybody. We got a really, really great one today, you know, for a change. We're going to be talking about something very close to my heart. And we're going to be talking to someone who's also very close to my heart, Sherry Lockman, who is head of Foster America. And she was my L.A., my legislative assistant in the HELP Committee, uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. She was uh, my L.A. for education. And uh, we got a piece in uh, the reform of No Child Left Behind, which addressed foster kids and when foster kids would get a new family. And, and I met a lot of foster kids and Sometimes they'd have like 10 or more families. And what they would do, they'd yank them out of their school and make them go to another school if the new foster parents lived in another school district. And that's just ridiculous because school is one of probably the constant in their life. You know, we record these a couple days before they drop. As I say sometimes, Think of our show and our podcast as the daily without the resources of the New York Times. So we actually uh, do one a week, and I watched the first day of the hearings. What I came away with is that when I was a kid, I thought that our government officials were like Ambassador Taylor and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State Kent. Uh, That's what I thought people in our government were like, especially in the Foreign Service, and they were working for our country. And that our country was working in a way to make the world a better place and help people who were being attacked by bad people. I was just so struck that now the people in our government are people like Devin Nunes, the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, the Republican, who I'm going to play some of him. And they're like Jim Jordan, who is just... In this, he picks some convoluted piece of testimony from when they did it in the skiff, in the secure room. And, you know, there's 
pages and pages and pages of testimony. So if you want to pick something that sounds convoluted and difficult to understand, there'll be something there. And this is what he does all the time. He's a guy from Ohio who never wears a, a jacket at hearings. He's always in his shirt sleeves and a, a tie. And you know what? At a certain point, show a little respect. I mean, this is a impeachment hearing. You know, wear a jacket. Wear, wear your your suit jacket or, your, or at least a sport coat. I mean, uh, I think Adam Schiff is what I thought of when I was a kid. And I think Donald Trump is not what I considered what a president certainly would be like, but anybody in our government, I just did not think of our government that way. And it's too bad. It's too bad. This is just, I think this is a sad time. That's what I think. And so I want you to listen to uh, some of this from the first day of these hearings and uh, just stuff from them that annoys me and uh, from uh, from the Republicans that annoys me and from Ambassador Taylor and uh, Secretary Kent, which um, is such a, just a radical departure from what you're hearing these days from Republicans. So let's, let's roll that. The issue that we confront is the one posed by the president's acting chief of staff when he challenged Americans to get over it. Is this what Americans should now expect from their president? What we will witness today is a televised theatrical performance staged by the Democrats. Ambassador Taylor and Mr. Kent, I'd like to welcome you here. I'd like to congratulate you for passing the Democrat Star Chamber editions held for the last weeks in the basement of the Capitol. It seems you agreed, witting or unwittingly, to participate in a drama. But the main performance, the Russia hoax, has ended, and you've been cast in the low-rent Ukrainian sequel. Over the course of 2018 and 2019, I became increasingly aware of an effort by Rudy Giuliani and others, including his associates Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, to run a campaign to smear Ambassador Yovanovitch and other officials at the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv. During the late spring and summer of 2019, I became alarmed as those efforts bore fruit. They led to the ouster of Ambassador Yovanovitch and hampered U.S. efforts to establish rapport with the New Zelensky administration in Ukraine. We got six people having four conversations in one sentence, and you just told me this is where you got your clear understanding. Which, I, I mean, even though you had three opportunities with President Zelensky for him to tell you, you know what? We're going to do these investigations to get the aid. Didn't tell you three different times. Never makes an announcement. Never tweets about it. Never does a CNN interview. This, this is what I can't believe. And you're their star witness. You're their first witness. Mr. You're Jordan. the guy. You're the guy based on this. Based on, I mean, I've seen, I've seen church prayer chains that are easier to understand than this. Ambassador Taylor recalls that Mr. Morrison told Ambassador Taylor that I told Mr. Morrison and I conveyed this message to Mr. Yarmouk on September 1st, 20. This all happens, by the way. 
This all happens, by the way, in Warsaw, where Vice President Pence meets with President Zelensky. And guess Ask what? Taylor. They didn't talk about any linkage either. The time of the gentleman's expired. I want to emphasize at the outset that while I am aware that the committee has requested my testimony as part of impeachment proceedings, I am not here to take one side or the other or to advocate for any particular outcome of these proceedings. My sole purpose is to provide facts as I know them about the incidents in question, as well as my views about the strategic importance of Ukraine to the United States. Wow. You know, I mean, I don't like to call someone an asshole. It's just too easy to do. And especially not on like a, a, a show or a podcast. I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm not, not going to do it right this moment. But, you know, when you look at Ambassador Taylor, now here's a guy, uh, I mean, fifth in his class at West Point, goes to Vietnam in the infantry, decorated bronze star, et cetera, et cetera. Then in the Foreign Service for decades, and now he's acting secretary of Ukraine, and he sees what's happening, and that's why he testified. And George Kent, the same thing. He, he didn't go to Vietnam and... Uh, he's a little younger, I have the sense. But these guys are public servants. And they're people who want to make the world a better place. And they do it by being conscientious and thorough and smart. And by acting in a way that they feel is best for the United States of America, but also for the country that they are uh, assigned to. What strikes me about this whole thing is that Donald Trump was willing to withhold this $390 million worth of arms from Ukraine so they could defend themselves. And it became very clear to me that fighters in Ukraine were dying, were getting killed by the Russians because Trump was withholding this aid. And it was all in the service of something that's illegal, <laughs> which is getting a foreign country to help him win an election. This is really horrible. I don't think we have a different moral standard uh, from, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. From Jim Jordan, sure. From Devin Nunes, sure. I mean, I don't think they're actually confused, really. But uh, from the acting chief of staff, who basically said, uh, yeah, yeah, we, uh, that's right. We do this all the time. We get favors by withholding 
stuff. And we say, uh, you know, you'll get this if you do this. I guess in many cases, that is what you do, and that's, that's legal. I think it's legal to do a quid pro quo, like saying if you clean up your act, we'll give you more aid or something like that. I'm sure that happens all the time. But to withhold military assistance that they are expecting, that Congress voted for, that you signed in order for you to get some fake dirt on the guy you think is going to be your opponent, gee whiz, that's low. It's just low. Okay. You know, I've only seen one day. <laughs> That's, that was the first day. But Jordan's thing is just obnoxious. Nunes' thing is obnoxious. The rest of uh, this uh, 45, 50 minutes is, is not going to be obnoxious at all. It's going to be, uh, I think it'll make you feel that there's uh, people out there who are are doing uh, stuff for the right reasons because they have heart and because they care about kids and have learned from their own experiences. I, I hope you listen and enjoy this. So once again, it's uh, Sherry Lockman, who is... Uh, the head of an organization that she created, Foster America. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sherry, you founded this like three years ago? That's right. Uh, Sherry was my legislative assistant in education 
when I was on the HELP committee, Health, Education, Labor, and Pension. She was the education part. Sherry helped me in, in so many ways on education. One of the things she's passionate about and I became passionate about because she's passionate about it is uh, foster children. And Sherry, you, you were in foster care yourself for a little while, right? I was between the ages of six and eight. Okay, so it's uh, three years about, or two two plus? Almost two. I moved between three different foster homes during that time. Three different homes. Now, this is one of the experiences I had getting to know foster kids, which I started doing when we we introduced an amendment to uh, what was then uh, No Child Left Behind. The whole idea was foster kids change foster families all the time, right? That's exactly right. Very often. Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember uh, on your suggestion, I went to, in Minneapolis, a housing thing where there were foster kids who had just aged out. Because when you're 18, you're not in it anymore, right? It depends on the state. In some states, you can stay in through 21. Okay. Well, I guess in Minnesota, it was 18. The, the average that I got from the number of foster families they had been in was was like 10. 10. And you came up with this piece of legislation. And by the way, my, my chief of staff, Drew Littman, always told me never to give anyone else credit <laughs> for anything because it's, it's the senator that always thinks of everything. But I'm not senator now, so I can give you credit for this. But this was a great amendment. And when I talk to people about my career in the Senate and why I miss the Senate, I always bring this up. You can do big things, and I did some really big things in the Senate, but you can do small things, seemingly small things, that make a huge difference in people's lives. So, Sherry, do you want to explain what what the amendment was? The provisions related to the education of foster youth that you ended up attaching to the No Child Left Behind reform bill do three things. One is the provisions allow foster children to remain in the same school, even when they move to a new foster home in a new school district. The reason that's so important is because foster children often change schools when they move. And if you can imagine being a foster kid, changing schools once, twice, sometimes three times, in a year, and as you said, for some foster children, 10 times or even more over the course of their childhoods in foster care, that means when you're changing schools that often, your education turns into Swiss cheese. Research shows that kids lose four to six months of educational progress each time they move schools. So if you imagine moving that often, you can understand why the educational outcomes of kids in foster care are so poor. Okay, let me talk about this provision, because this was the one that was closest to my heart mm-hmm. because we had a, um, a young woman who was, I think, still 17 or a senior in high school or a junior She's about uh, to go to college. from Minnesota, mm-hmm. and it was Kayla, right? Kayla Van Dyke. Uh, Kayla Van Dyke. And man, oh man, was she impressive. Th- didn't you think so? I mean, it was stunning, I thought, yeah. her testimony. She missed fourth grade entirely. Kayla moved between seven different foster homes. She was in and out of foster care and homelessness over the course of her childhood, and she attended 10 different schools. This provision basically said this. Okay, if you get a new foster family, 
and they live outside the district, the, uh, the school district where you're going to school, you can still go to that school. You have a right to stay in the school that you're in. Now, the point I made to my colleagues, and this was really, really hard hmm. to get them to vote for this, which is absolutely ridiculous, but in school, that's the one piece of continuity you might have if you're changing foster families, for God's sakes. Mm-hmm. Teachers can make a difference in kids' lives. You have relationships with teachers. But there's other things. There's things like sports. And in sports, very often you have teammates. And very often you have these things, uh, let's see, what are they called? Friends. Friends. <laughs> There are also these things called classes, and schools often don't teach the curriculum in classes in exactly the same order. So if you're in one school learning one thing and then you move to another school and they're teaching it in a different order and they are on a different part of the curriculum, it's just terribly confusing. It becomes really hard to make educational progress. So the bill basically said that if a kid gets a different foster family, and the foster family, that new family, lives outside your school district, the kid gets to decide whether they stay in the school they're in. Okay? That, that's it, right? It says that if it's in the best interest of the child, so the kid's view should be taken into account. But there are other views taken into account as well. And the types of factors that are considered are, is the kid within a reasonable distance from their old school? So if the kid is three hours away, of course, it's not in their best interest to commute six hours every day. You're also looking at factors such as the academic rigor in the previous school, whether that kid has friends and teachers that they are connected to in that previous school. Okay. So you know the bill better than me. (laughs) Anyway, so I thought, okay, this just makes sense. And so let's say you move to a school district that's, next to the school district or two school districts away or three and the kid wants to go stay in the school that either the first school district or the second school district or social services in one of the places they have to arrange the transportation right that's right i remember bringing this up when we were doing a markup what's called a markup and a markup is when you are kind of writing a bill and people have offered amendments and you vote on the amendments. And I figure this is easy. This is easy. How can you not be for this? And then I get this pushback and the pushback was, isn't that the federal government mandating Mm -hmm. something to local government? And we're, you know, we don't like that because we're Republicans. And I go like, no child left behind says that if the school fails three years in a row and failure was a certain percentage of the kids meeting a a standard of proficiency, which is sort of arbitrary Mm -hmm. anyway, that then they had to get rid of the principal and replace half the teachers. So you're telling me you're against federal mandates, but it's okay to make them change principles, get rid of half the teachers and replace those teachers from somewhere else, that's, you know, that's not too much of a burden on the, on the school district, but arranging for a, a friggin' ride. (laughs) (laughs) And then some of the Republicans went, well, you know, uh, 
Okay, well, I take your argument, but I'm still going to vote no. <laughs> when we finally got it done, when it finally in yeah. ESSA passed, which is the reform of No Child Left Behind, we got this in. Because by then, everyone had kind of figured it out that I was right. Right. This is one where I really was scratching my head, though. And so we're dealing with the first markup. Any markup where you pass it, it sets kind of a precedent mm-hmm. and helps it on its way to get passed later. What's your memory of it? So because a markup set a precedent, it's really important to avoid setting the wrong precedent. So that's why you have to count the votes before you even propose an amendment. Because if we didn't think we had the votes uh, to pass this amendment in committee, we would have then voted on it and set a precedent that it doesn't have the support that it needs, which is does more yeah, damage we didn't than good. Bring it up and have it lose. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. We spent over a year working with staff uh, from the other members of the committee to make sure that they understood the provisions that you were proposing, that we had their and their bosses buy-in. I remember going into this markup, being told by the staff of at least every Democrat on the committee that we had their bosses vote. Uh That turned out not to be the case. (laughs) So it was really surprising. We had a little bit of a surprise uh, at the thing. And and, uh, this is a story that that you'll allow me to tell, and you'll correct me if I don't have the details right. Sure. And I'm not sure if you want to name names, but but there was a particular Democrat (laughs) whose vote we thought we had, but we didn't end up having his vote, and he ended up arguing against the provisions in the committee. Yeah, he he is one of the presidential candidates, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he is not doing well in, in the thing, but it's not because of this. <laughs> but anyway, so this is something I've not seen before, and I guess there's a reason because it's probably a rule against it. That's right. So this was supposed to be a set of provisions that we're going to pass easily. And when this one senator started expressing objections, all of a sudden, um, others on the committee too, both Democrats and Republicans, started to raise questions. And then there was a big discussion around whether these provisions uh, should pass and a big, big debate. During the debate, the senators are supposed to argue back and forth with each other, not their staff. What the staff are doing is they are energetically behind the scenes, passing stats and talking points and suggestions to the senators. So I was doing to that with other you. staff to, and to me. Right, right, to their senators. You, you, you can give it to another senator's uh, staff. And you can do that and as well. Can, and, give, and give talking points to me. We were doing that. So we were, we were but, doing that. A colleague of mine who was a staffer for this particular senator who started raising the objections was arguing back and forth uh, with her boss to try to convince her boss why he should, as planned, go ahead and vote for these provisions. And I was rigorously passing talking points and stats uh, to this colleague, and it became this weird... um, Three-way game. It was kind of, of, you were handing stuff to her. She was, hand, yeah. she was handing it to, to Bennett, and it was pretty obvious that was going. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. okay. So it got it got really awkward. I was physically uh, right in the proximity of uh, the the senator and the senator. <laughs> he and I ended up directly arguing back and forth with each other. 
Okay, and, I've never seen that. Didn't hadn't seen it before. I've never seen it since. It was, in my mind, hilarious. <laughs> Lowly staffers are not supposed to talk to other people. Oh, this is so the against the rules. This is crazy. This is insane. What you did, but he voted for it. He did. And to be fair to him, he did ask some really legitimate questions, and I'm glad that those were aired, and perhaps he was going to vote for it the whole time anyway. But there were some moments there. What were the legitimate questions? Around the cost of transportation, and we we had two (laughs) answers to that. One is that we're talking about a relatively small number of children uh, compared to the general student population. uh, What if... Two-thirds of the kids in school are foster kids. Exactly. And uh, they all get new foster parents uh, in a a school district that is 15 minutes away. Huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while I was making these wonky arguments based on cost, you cut straight to the heart of the matter, which I think really won the day. You said, these are our kids, literally, by definition. These are wards of the state. They are wards of the government. And you, as a senator, feel responsible for them. And you wouldn't treat your own kids this way. Um, you wouldn't send your kids to 5, 10, 20 different schools and destroy their education. So if these children in foster care are truly our kids, how can we allow this to happen? And that argument is, I think, what convinced the committee. And we got Lisa Murkowski. We, we did. We, we got, got one Republican. Republican. That was exciting. Yeah, you can you can see how susceptible uh, Republicans are to, you know, tugging at their heartstrings. <laughs> we got one, <laughs> and uh, on that, on that, let's go to Foster America. This is extremely important. I got to know a lot of foster kids uh, because of this, and uh, t- tell us what Foster America does. Sure. Before going into what Foster America does, I'd love to talk for a moment about why you should care about what happens in the child welfare system. And there are three reasons I want to emphasize in that regard. One is that many more kids in our country are involved in the child welfare system than most people think. It's actually one in eight kids in our country who are abused or neglected by the time they turn 18 to the point that a government child welfare agency comes in and does investigation and confirms that case. That's one in eight. And when that happens, state and local government child welfare agencies come in and they do one of two things with these kids. They either provide them and their families with services, such as therapy, or in the worst cases, they take the kids out of their homes and place them in foster care. But even that smaller subgroup of kids who are placed in foster care is much bigger than most people think. So it's actually one in 17 kids in our country who spend part of their childhoods in foster care. And by the way, that number is one in nine for black children and one in seven for Native American children. So one of the reasons you should care is that it's affecting many more kids than most people think. The second reason is that our country's broken approach to child welfare not only has a devastating impact on the many kids involved in the system, but it's also an upstream root cause of nearly every other downstream challenge in our society. And the statistics back this up. So we know, for example, that upwards of 70% of individuals in our 
juvenile justice system have spent time in our child welfare system. We know that upwards of 60% of youth who are sex trafficked have come from foster care, and that nearly half of homeless young adults have spent time in foster care. And Black and uh, Native American children are two to three times more likely to wind up in foster care and then land on its conveyor belt to these other broken systems. So if you care about these downstream challenges in our society, if you care about disproportionality in these downstream systems like mass incarceration, you ought to care about child welfare as well. Do all kids who are taken from their parents, they don't all go into foster care. Where Mm -hmm. else can they go? Sure. Uh, So they can be adopted or they can go into what's called legal guardianship, or they could go to relatives, which is actually the best case scenario. Based on research, we know that kids who wind up with an aunt or uncle or or someone else the kid knows and loves, like a teacher or coach, some of those kids who go to relatives or people who are like relatives, like the teacher or coach, are actually still categorized as foster kids when those relatives get licensed as foster parents so that they can get some financial support to help them care for those kids. So... What do you do uh, to reduce the number of kids who get into the system? And then what do you do to make sure that they're going to a home where the people there are doing it for the right reasons and are going to be good, good parents? What we specifically do at Foster America is we've recognized that The biggest challenges getting in the way of reducing foster care and improving foster care are actually interdisciplinary in nature. And for too long, we've just used one tool in the toolbox in the child welfare system to address these challenges, which is casework, which is an incredibly important skill set in the field. But we actually need to bring to the table people with a variety of different skill sets to address these big, complex interdisciplinary challenges. So the way we do that is through a mid-career fellowship program. We go out and we recruit highly talented mid-career professionals from other fields in which there are skills that are sorely needed but lacking in the child welfare system. So we recruit our fellows from four different kinds of backgrounds, one from backgrounds in technology and data analytics, two from backgrounds in marketing and human-centered design, three from backgrounds in finance, and finally from backgrounds in strategy and operations. And after we recruit these professionals from these other sectors, we place them in leadership roles for full-time 18-month fellowships in child welfare agencies and related public agencies across the country. So you recruit these mid-career people. Mm -hmm. So these are people at mid-career who are going like, I'm (laughs) mid-career. I'm, how old are you at mid-career? Like in your late 40s, early 50s? Is that mid-career? We define it really broadly. Is that usually someone who just doesn't want to keep doing what they're doing? Right? Often it's people who want to apply their skills to I public get. service, and we tell them if you want to help literally the most vulnerable kids in a field where you're irreplaceable, come join us. Okay, so the data people, what do they do? What do they do? Sure. So about half of our fellows work on reform projects that aim to reduce the need for foster care, and the other half of our fellows work on projects designed to improve foster care. So to give you an example of a data and technology project within the prevention bucket, we have a fellow named Jason Coulter in Washington State. And he comes from a background in computer science and data analytics. And what he is working to do is to connect data systems in Washington State across their early childhood, child welfare, and juvenile justice systems, all for the purposes 
of prevention. So for example, using this integrated data, he's helping the state figure out how do you identify the highest risk families earlier before they reach the doorstep of foster care? Uh, and how do you then match them earlier with the right services that based on the data of similar kids who have come before them are most likely to prevent these particular families from winding up in foster oh, care okay. later on. So, so what you're doing is you're applying some science exactly. and thought to this. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Okay, okay. That works. It does. And Science and thought. Sci- okay. Science okay. and thought <laughs> turn out to be important. I'm writing that down because it might, <laughs> it might work in other areas too. So to give you one more example that's science. a little bit less wonky, in the reform bucket of improving... Well, that, I think everybody actually understands that. Okay. And I think that's exciting. I think it's cool. That's awesome. I don't think that's wonky at all. <laughs> So our mm-hmm. our former fellow Adam um, in Rhode Island used skills in marketing and human centered design, which is essentially a set of skills around getting to know your customers, your end users, and designing better systems for them. He used this combination of skills from the business sector and marketing and human centered design to help Rhode Island with one within one year increase by twenty five percent the number of foster families and relative caregivers that they recruited and licensed. That then decreased by 30% the number of foster children that Rhode Island sent to these modern-day orphanages, the institutions we were just talking about, I see. when there was a shortage of foster families. So there is a shortage exactly. of, of families mm-hmm. that will adopt someone into, into foster care. That's right. A kid into foster, There's a big shortage across the country, actually, um, Between 2011 and 2017, the number of kids in foster care spiked. It went up year after year. Many experts believe that's largely due to the opioid crisis and other drug epidemics. And the number of foster homes, the supply of foster homes, simply did not keep up with that spike. So we wound up in this crazy situation in many states where way too many kids were being sent to these jail-like group homes and institutions. And when kids were first coming into foster care, where many of them were just being put up in hotels or sleeping on floors because there were not not enough foster homes available. So for anyone listening who's considering becoming a foster parent, our field needs you. Um, I highly recommend going to a website called Foster More to learn more about this. Foster More? Foster More. If you just Google that. Okay. Okay. Uh, Foster More. We got a break for a commercial, and I'm so excited about this sponsor, although I don't know uh, who it is. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, What makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, 
where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. We are back. We are talking to uh, Sherry Lockman, the uh, head of Foster America. There is a shortage of, of foster parents, people willing to do this. Can you tell which foster household, can you tell which ones are going to be good and which ones not so good? Is there is there a way of doing that? I mean, obviously, if there's a shortage, I, you don't have a big choice, but is there a way that these guys who do data mm-hmm. and stuff can figure out who's going to be a successful parent? Mm-hmm. Or, or is it just basically person to person and somebody is better than others at picking people out, or you just go with what you got, mm-hmm. right? Any loving parent knows what the criteria are for being a good foster parent. It's applying those same principles to foster children, the same principles you would apply to your own children. Unfortunately, in many states, there are check-the-box criteria that get in the way of getting the right foster parents. So, for example, criteria around the specific square footage and number of rooms that grandma's home is supposed to have um, that would bar grandma from being able to foster her grandchild when it's not the square footage in the home or the number of the rooms, but grandma's unconditional love that means the most to that child's development. So a lot of this is is common sense as well. So it's not the square footage of the home. It's the uh, cubic <laughs> footage of the heart. Of oh, the heart. What a wonderful uh, hallmark. I art. think uh, I, I would, that's Foster America's, that's your uh, slogan. <laughs> Our new motto. <laughs> Thank you, Al. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh, you can use it. You can use it. Go ahead. It's yours. Unless you do, like, greeting cards. If you do greeting cards, you know, cut me in a little bit. <laughs> Maybe that will be our new fundraising strategy. It's a great thing you're doing here. So you've been at it for three years, right? That's right. Can you give us some idea of how things are going? Yeah. Uh, so over the past three years, we've placed uh, 48 fellows in 15 states across the country and, most recently, Puerto Rico. And by the end of 2021, we'll be on track to place over 100 new cross-sector leaders in the field, which in our small sector is enough of a critical mass to really start creating a tipping point and driving real change. And that's in your infancy (laughs) uh, in this, really. That's that's right. It's early days for us. Our number of fellows and our impact continues to grow year over year. In addition to the current version of the fellowship, we're also working on some new experiments as well that involve essentially bringing fellows and agency partners together across uh, groups of states to work together on a shared North Star reform goal. So for example, in our new cohort of fellows, we have fellows working across three regions, Indiana, Michigan, and Baltimore, on the shared goal of improving foster parent and relative caregiver recruiting and licensing. And the purpose of working this way is that it allows the fellows in the states to divide up with each other which innovations each fellow and state partner is testing uh, to advance uh, the shared goal and then to share back with each other the results of their experiments so that if a fellow and their state partners in a particular state are really successful with an innovation they are testing, then all the fellows and the state partners in the network can adapt and scale across the whole network the innovations that are working. Let's say you're listening to this 
and you're going like, you know, I just sent my youngest off to college and uh, we've got a nice house here and this sounds like something really good that we could do. What, what, what does someone who wants to help a foster child do? How do you, how do you go about that? There are many ways to help. Uh, one is by volunteering directly with foster youth. And I would say the highest form of that is, of course, by becoming a foster and or adoptive parent. I should mention that there are over 100,000 children in our foster care system who are waiting for adoptive parents who are up for adoption. In addition to specifically fostering or adopting, there are other ways to volunteer as well. So, for example, you you can become a mentor to a foster child. You can become a court-appointed special advocate. So I'd highly recommend Googling the term CASA, court-appointed special advocate. That's really an incredible way to volunteer. What that means is you actually go with that child to court. But before you go with them to court to their child welfare hearings, you really get to know that child. You interview people in their lives, like their teacher, so that then when you show up with them at court, you really understand what their true needs and interests are. So you can better advocate for them in front of the judge about, for example, what type of foster home they should be placed in, whether whether or not they should be returned to their birth family. That's an incredibly powerful way to volunteer oh, wow. that makes a difference in kids' lives. That is a way to, to make a difference without the commitment of literally it almost adopting a kid or taking in a kid as a foster Mm -hmm. child. There's a slippery slope in volunteering that once you get to know and love a kid through mentoring or becoming an advocate for them, you eventually might be uh, interested in perhaps providing them with more of a permanent home. Other things you can do include advocating with elected officials. So next time a politician asks for your vote or for your check, ask them what they are actually doing to reform our broken child welfare system. That's a real stumper. Many elected officials have not studied up on this issue and won't know what to say. That's how far under the radar screen this is. So when they are pressured by constituents to actually know something about this and do something about this, that will go a long way in changing the system. Even if you don't want to help a kid right? and just want to stump a politician (laughs) for just a minute, you can ask about that because I think you're right. (laughs) What are you doing about our child welfare system, Senator, (laughs) or candidate for for Senate? Mm -hmm. Mm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do if you happen to be lucky enough to have wealth is to donate to organizations that are working to innovate in the child welfare field. I can tell you as the founder of a nonprofit startup that there's an anemic private funder landscape in our sector, and that really does get in the way of the ability of organizations that are testing innovative things to survive. You know who listens to this podcast? Who? Uh, Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Jeff Bezos all the time. Because he heard that I complain about Whole Foods, <laughs> so he wanted to he wanted to listen, and then he got hooked. Uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff, if you're listening, I, I have Amazon Prime, <laughs> and um, you, you could use a, a billion dollars, right? Absolutely. You could figure out Make a way to too. do something. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the, well, there you uh, go. You see, that's why you're a leader, because <laughs> most. <laughs> Most people in that position would go, I would, wow, that would be great, a billion dollars. But you go, make it too. You see? 
And then, of course, if you have anyone in your audience who's listening who has a skill set from another sector from which we recruit, such as uh, technology or data analytics, and you're interested in applying your skills to in a really important public service cause, please consider applying to be a Foster America Fellow. Or if you know anyone like that, please refer them to our website, foster-america.org. Foster-america.org. But you can just Google Foster America. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, can, what of your story would you like to tell sure. us? You did defy the odds. Tell us what your experience was and, and how you kind of um, got out of that cycle. So I entered foster care in Brooklyn a few days after I turned six. I remember being passed around multiple foster families, caseworkers, and judges like many other kids in foster care. I also remember raising red flags about particular experiences in the system along the way, such as about visits with my abusive mother or about a particularly problematic foster home. And I remember being completely ignored what what age are you raising red flags? Uh, between the ages of six and eight, so while I was in the system. Okay, so they ignore a seven-year-old who goes, this family mm-hmm. ain't mm-hmm. good for me, right? And that, that okay. not only hurt me, but the kids who came into that home after me. Uh, so one, one specific example of that is I remember in one of their foster homes as a seven-year-old being sat down to watch pornography uh, with the foster parents. I did mention this to my caseworker, and it went completely ignored. And then the next young girl who was put in that home was sexually abused by the foster father. Like many kids in the foster care system, as I was being passed from home to home, I remember feeling different than other kids and the biological kids in the home. I remember feeling less deserving of unconditional love. I remember feeling pretty much worthless and discarded like a piece of trash. And my goal in the work that I do in child welfare is to make sure that no other kid has to grow up this way. Yep. Well, that's that's you. (laughs) It's you, <laughs> and that's why you know I loved having you as in L.A. You were passionate, even if you um, violated a cardinal rule. It was worth it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. That senator, it seems like someone who wouldn't uh, hold it yeah. against you. Uh, and then then you said that you had a fourth grade teacher. Yes, yes. So like like so many other kids in the system who go on to have better outcomes in adulthood, I was I was lucky to have teachers and mentors and family members in my life who really helped me be resilient. Uh, one of those teachers was my fourth grade English teacher, Ms. Owen. She saw me crying in the classroom one day in, in fourth grade about some of the external circumstances in in my home situation. And I remember her taking me out of the classroom and saying to me that I could someday use the childhood trauma I had experienced and my experience in foster care to advocate for other vulnerable children, other children like me. And her words... 
Boy, she hit it on the nail on the head, didn't she? Yes, it's a pretty wow. crazy thing to say to someone that young, but her <laughs> words completely transformed my life. The magic in what she said is that it helped me go from feeling like a like a victim of my circumstances to actually feeling empowered for the first time in my life, to feeling empowered to use my circumstances to make a difference for other kids. And her words are why I studied hard in school and went on to obtain undergraduate and graduate degrees so that my voice would finally be heard in a society that is all too often only able to hear voices from places of privilege. Her words are why I spent the past 13 years of my career working to improve public systems for vulnerable children, as you know, first as a lawyer and then later as an education and child policy advisor in the Senate, where I work for you, and then later on in the U.S. Department of Education and in the Obama White House. And her words are why I ended up stepping off the Washington career ladder to go off and start Foster America. You're pretty inspiring, Sherry. Thank you. Proud of you. Thank you, Al. That means a lot. Yeah. Um, okay, enough of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we did that thing. Are you, you getting verklempt? Yeah, I'm getting verklempt. It's pretty easy for me I to know. get verklempt. So, <laughs> you used to cry all the time. Yeah, you know. <laughs> when, you, when you do something, you know, and, I, you know, people ask me if I miss yeah. it, and I do. And, and I said, it's what you can accomplish. And even if it seems like a small thing, like saying that a kid can stay in the school if he changes foster or she changes foster parents in another school district, that they have to transport that kid, if the kid chooses, to stay in the same damn school so they so somewhere because of you mm-hmm. and me there's a kid running cross country mm. or you know in a play at school with their friends who've been their friends for mm-hmm. a long time exactly when they need those friends the most when they're experiencing so much instability in their lives yep so i'm proud of what we did together i'm proud of you even though I had very little to do with it. You had a lot to do so. with it. Thank you. Well, you don't had a lot to do with your teacher and the really shitty foster parents. <laughs> <you had>. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> there you go. Ending on a high note. Don't want to end on for Clint. Um, uh, Sherry, thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Al. I really appreciate your shining a spotlight on the issues of children and families in the child welfare system. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.